This is In the Weeds, the ultimate OLCC cannabis podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about social distancing, masks, and reopening Oregon. We'll take a look at the OLCC licensing updates with Statewide Licensing Director Jason Hansen. And we'll talk about the virtual metric user group. All that and more coming up. I'm Mark Pettinger, along with Amanda Borup and TJ Sheehy, here for Cannabis in the Time of COVID. Amanda, TJ, good to be back with you. Good to be here virtually. Yeah, it's nice to be here. It, it is. Uh, it's been uh, a long time since we've done a podcast. Uh, I think our first and only uh, 2020 podcast was uh, look back at the changes in Oregon's cannabis program as we transitioned from 2019 to 2020. And that was about six months ago, I think, and a lot has changed. Yes, the, the world has changed around us. Uh, in some ways, cannabis industry has, has been sort of the one consistent uh, because it remained open and, and wasn't as directly affected as other industries. But, but yes, um, a very different place from January or February. Yeah, I think one of the things is that um, the cannabis program and the rules and regulations around it uh, actually served as a, as a guide for us to uh, tweak the rules on the alcohol side of the agency to, to be more flexible. You know, I think what we learned is that, you know, as challenging and, and, and as imperfect as the rules and regulations are with regard to cannabis, uh, boy, it's a lot easier to adjust some of those than it is uh, has been to adjust a lot of the rules on the alcohol side of the equation. Yeah. Um, well, since the COVID-19 pandemic uh, started, there have been a lot of changes uh, at OLCC, and we've had to pivot to continue to serve our licensees. And a lot of that attention has been on the hospitality industry and our alcohol licensees. But that doesn't mean we've forgotten about the cannabis industry. At first, we were focused on trying to help licensees confront COVID-19 to enable them to continue to keep the cannabis industry up and running. And for the last four weeks or so, we've been focused on helping those same licensees with the safe reopening of Oregon. During that time, our licensees may have noticed that we've moved our website from an outdated platform to one that's a little more current. It's still a work in progress and we need to do some more reorganizing and our hope is to provide even more information, but in a more useful manner. And we'd love to get feedback from our listeners. So if you're listening and you've been to the website or haven't, go and check it out. And then let us know what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd like us to consider adding to the website. So let's get on with the podcast. But first, some housekeeping. This podcast is being recorded in July 2020, so anything regarding the rules communicated in podcasts may be superseded by podcasts after this one or other communications from the OLCC. Our usual caveat, we call it Amanda's rule, which is read the rules. Oh, that's quick. 
yeah, you guys have, have you forgotten that? We, you know, we, we used to say that in unison. Uh, so here's the official disclaimer. This podcast and the information contained or the information provided during this podcast is not, that's a capital N, a capital O, a capital T, a substitute for the rules or for knowing what the rules are. So when in doubt about something you hear on this podcast, contact the OLCC for clarification. And the easiest way to do that is to write us at marijuana at oregon.gov. That's the elephant in the room, the big issues in front of us and what people are talking about. And there's no getting around the fact that people are talking about COVID-19 and its implications, particularly about social distancing. Here's a good time for us to remind everybody to maintain their social distancing and to wear face masks or face coverings uh, to prevent the spread of the virus. So social distancing, guys, plays a part in uh, what we're allowing our customers to do in terms of showing up to purchase cannabis products from their favorite retailer. Yeah, definitely. So um, we kind of, like you said earlier, it was it actually worked out really well that um, we had so, so many rules and regulations as far as marijuana was concerned. And so we already had pretty, pretty con- comprehensive delivery rules. And so what we were able to do was take our real delivery, like for at-home delivery rules, and just modify them a bit to make it for on-site delivery. And so that way, it allowed retailers to be able to take orders from inside the store and then be able to deliver those outside of the store. And there's multiple ways that can happen. I mean, so many people are, I mean, it's like the creativity of the cannabis industry, right? Like people are using beepers. So you come in, you get a beeper, you go outside and you get a beeper when it's time to go in if you're going to go in the store. Beeper, that's 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 OG, Amanda, isn't it? Uh, Maybe not a beeper. A beeper, one of those little things they use at the restaurant. Vibrating discs or something like that? Yeah, okay, all right, all right, okay. A beeper. It could, hey. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> it's yeah. a revival of the beeper. Um, regardless, um, they could um, make the order ahead of time, wait in their car outside, and an employee will come out and deliver their order, or possibly an employee comes out to take the order outside the store goes back into the store and they're able to complete that transaction without having a ton of people in the store at one time. And so that's really the point here is that we're trying to provide like a good way for our licensees to be able to social distance, keep themselves, their employees and their customers safe and healthy while still being able to pick up their cannabis products. We, you know, Amanda, we started this as a as a temporary emergency rule in response to COVID, uh, but that only gets us six months before we have to decide to sort of keep it or 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 get rid of it. Um, and so we've decided to go into permanent rulemaking. Can you talk a little bit about the permanent rules that we're we're talking about um, adopting related to COVID? and and what our thinking is uh, with those rules? Yeah, definitely. And um, <laughs> I don't. what I could say for sure is that they're permanent, hopefully temporary, <laughs> because they're permanent for social distancing, they're permanent for COVID, they're permanent for when we're really trying to keep um, everybody safe. They're not permanent, most likely going on. 
you know, after this passes, hopefully it does in a timely manner, um, people will be able to go back into stores and be able to shop like they used to. Um, we'll still have at-home delivery after that, so people can still order and get things delivered to them at home if they want to. But the on-site delivery is really um, a social distancing like tactic. It's really helping our licensees be able to do that um, in a way that that they can still go on with regular business. Um, realistically speaking, though, um, it probably will not last past COVID. And I, for one, hope that COVID does not last a really long time. <laughs> hey, uh, uh, TJ, that reminds me because what Amanda was saying with regard to home delivery, and we were we were the well, the Oregon pioneers with home delivery for our cannabis program. So how is that How is that done? Is that picked up quite a bit during the pandemic? Uh, are more people utilizing uh, home delivery? So it, it sort of depends on, on how you look at it. Uh, the home delivery numbers have, have gone up quite a bit. Uh, they've, I think, doubled, you know, so, so a lot more home delivery is going on. But home delivery is like less than 2% of all sales still. So although it's picked up a lot relative to the deliveries that used to happen, by and large, people are going to the store to either go into the store literally or pick up curbside. Um, and so that is still the primary way that people are going because we do have a lot of stores out there. We do have a lot uh, uh, for you know choice-wise for, for consumers to, to pick what store they wanna go to. Um, and in fact, be, since COVID started, our numbers sales-wise, total sales-wise, has has been really, really strong, actually. Uh, not just the increase in home delivery. Uh, we broke $100 million for the first time in May, and that happened again in June. Uh, and so we usually have, you know, 25, 30% increase year over year. We've been hitting 50%, 60% in some months because, you know, people are at home. Maybe it's also encouraging new people to consume uh, when they wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, but it's a little bit of a mix, I think, of, of people buying more and also people buying a little bit up the shelf. Uh, so instead of buying maybe a $5 gram, they buy a, a $6, $7 gram. Uh, and so, you know, when we're looking at it, it's based on dollars uh, and, and tax revenue for the state. Um, so it's a little bit hard just because we don't track individuals or anything like that. It's a little bit hard to know necessarily who's buying what. But overall, the sales have continued to be strong uh, statewide. Robust, as we would say, robust. Yeah, robust. Uh, robust. Amanda, back to just for a second, back to uh, and, and for either of you actually, because as you guys know, I've been spending a lot of my time focused on on helping and supporting the alcohol side of the agency. So I, I you know, not quite as aware, at least even anecdotally, as to uh, how our licensees, our cannabis licensees, have embraced uh, curbside delivery. Uh, I, I remember, I do remember, however, getting a couple calls when we first, you know, um, made that available from licensees wanting to make sure they were going to get it straight. They were going to get it right. They were going to get it done correctly because they didn't want to be out of bounds. And I know, I, I, Amanda, I probably kicked a couple of those over to you. But generally, I mean, have our licensees, you know, taken advantage of this? Are they, are they, are they happy? You know, even 
uh, with the ability to be able to provide this kind of service and sales to their customers and patients? Yeah, you know, Mark, I'm I'm actually like very pleased to say we've had very few complaints. And that would be from like the general public, licensees, from local governments. We haven't heard about a lot of issues related to this. Personally, I I assumed that it was because um, the cannabis businesses, retail stores, I mean, all of our licensees got to stay open. You know, so many businesses were forced to close earlier in um, this pandemic. And hopefully, you know, they don't have to again. Um, but our licensees were able to stay open. So I think that um, they they realized that and, and we're really trying to treat their 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 customers, their employees with with respect and, and trying to to follow all the rules. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, on what Amanda's talking about, the, we haven't really heard any big issues. By and large, it seems like the licensees, the employees, the patrons are all abiding by social distancing and and what they need to do. And so that's why we're going into permanent rulemaking, extending the on-site delivery and those sorts of things. But at the same time, we are in, you know, unusual times, right? And, And one of the reasons we haven't heard as much might just be because fewer people are out and about uh, our inspectors are are not, you know, doing the blanket coverage on the marijuana side that we usually do because we're also trying to mitigate the spread and not do, you know, in-person contact as much. So certain things like camera coverage for on-site delivery is not in the temporary rule. It's not going to be in the permanent rule. But if we do decide this is going to continue long term, I would imagine that it's not going to be status quo because no one wants the status quo to maintain indefinitely. That means COVID, but that also means other things that happened as a result of COVID will also be reevaluated to fit what the world looks like. You know, TJ, I'm glad you brought that up too, because um, back to Mark's question, it doesn't have to do with exactly curbside, but one thing we do here is um, some things about mask wearing. So I think for the most part, like all of our retail stores have been really good about requiring masks since it's been a requirement and really even before that. But there still are people that want to come into stores and shop without a mask. And I think that in my mind, that's one of the nice things about the curbside and the on-site delivery is that if you don't want to wear a mask indoors when you go into a store, you don't have to go inside. Like you can shop at a store that allows curbside or onsite delivery and you can stay outside. And so um, I think that's one of the real positives that this um, that the onsite delivery has is that it's really a, an option for those who don't want to wear a mask inside. They, they don't have to. They can stay outside. They don't need to come in. You know, oh, go ahead, TJ. You're going to say something. Agreed. I mean, I, I think it, right now it's really about finding the, the best way to make things work when you know the platonic ideal is not possible right so it's 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 making it work as best as possible uh and so that's why we have these kind of multiple avenues for people to continue uh maintain their access uh uh, to cannabis shops and you know again um as i said a few minutes ago the the cannabis industry has provided us uh some knowledge and a framework for how to think about how we're doing 
other things in our agency, whether it's it's oversight of the the bottle bill and the the ramifications for it, uh, which also impact the you know some of our retailers in the cannabis industry, as well as the all the changes and the pivots we've made to support the alcohol industry. The um, you know the cannabis industry has given us uh, you know a good framework to follow, and and uh, as we've tried to make the everything else that we do a little more flexible. This is In the Weeds, the ultimate OLCC cannabis podcast for licensees and others interested in learning more about operating in Oregon's legalized cannabis industry. It's Compliance Corner. Here's where we take a look at some of the more commonly occurring, if not necessarily the most egregious, compliance issues that are cropping up. After the pandemic hit, we had to shift not only how we do our business here at the OLCC, but we also shifted the focus of our business. That was readily apparent in how we pivoted to help the hospitality industry, cutting red tape and streamlining licensing regulations through the use of temporary rules. Well, we've also pivoted in our approach to marijuana licensing. Joining us to talk about all things licensing is Jason Hansen, OLCC's Director of Licensing. Jason, welcome. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me today. Our agency has probably been most noticed, as I just mentioned, for a lot of the activity around alcohol licensees. Uh, So give us, though, an overall overview of the shift your team has made to handle licensing during the pandemic for the cannabis industry. So first, I would say that, uh, you know, towards the end of March, um, the agency, you know, really started to make some changes uh, in response to COVID. Um, Some negative to a degree within licensing, some very positive. Um, And really, this was to support uh, the decisions that we made uh, were to support um, both current active licensees and making sure that we could position ourselves to be ready for what was coming, uh, the things that we didn't know were coming, uh, just to be able to be prompt and responsive, as as well as to be able to support our staff and moving them out of the office so that they could um, work in a safe environment, um, proper properly distanced from each other. Um, so initially, at the end of March, we um, we paused assigning any new applications. Um, as uh, the caseloads for investigators um, were freed up. Uh, instead, what we did was we we only focused on um, needs from current licensees. That would include uh, change of location of licenses, um, change of ownerships, uh, endorsement changes, uh, things of those natures. So of that nature, so we could uh, just be as responsive as possible. And that went on for a couple of months. Um, and that um, what that allowed us to do was actually uh, make a, a quite a bit of headway uh, in our change of ownerships, especially with processor and retail licenses. Um, so, you know, we were we made some good pr- improvement there. Um, as, additionally, we did have some staff in the agency that, you know, because of a lot of the business closures, um, weren't able to perform their normal duties. So we brought in approximately 30 staff from other programs within the agency to assist licensing in many different areas, uh, both the alcohol and marijuana side. And for marijuana, those staff, uh, we had about a dozen staff specifically help work through um, renewals, marijuana licenses, license renewals. 
Uh, we, we did a crash course training for staff that never, really had never done that work. And then, um, uh, you know, made a lot of headway in getting through uh, the majority of, um, you know, the, the chunk of work that it takes to, you know, review a re license renewal um, for changes or not, and then to um, get those processed. So we, we definitely made a lot of progress there. Uh, and then one other change we made during um, in response to COVID, but is a change that we want to see move permanently, is that we've stopped um, or we changed a rule which previously required a on-site license inspection to occur before a license could be issued. Um, instead, we changed that language to read uh, that we may conduct an on-site inspection. And what we uh, believe this will do is it really it'll shorten uh, that licensing process time um, because, you know, in some cases it may take one to two or even three weeks to get an inspection scheduled um, and then completed. And then sometimes things need to be um, fixed or changed during that time before we would issue the license. So instead what we've done is we've updated our license acknowledgement form that is sent to the applicant at the end of the process, ensuring that they are aware of what's necessary on our inspection checklist. Um, and then they they fill out that form, sign it, send it to us, and then we will follow up. Um, we'll issue the license, and then you know soon after, ideally within a month or two, we'll follow up with an on-site inspection and work through those things that may still be uh, needed. Jason, you you mentioned in the COVID response that sort of renewal surge where we we added additional staff to process mm -hmm. the existing renewals we had. You know, as as I think most people if not everyone knows we got a lot more licenses than we expected and that's not just a one-time extra work that's every single year that number of licenses has to be renewed and so that created a lot more renewals in the pipeline beyond that renewal surge to sort of get that backlog down what other changes are we making on the renewal process and and what benefit is that going to have for existing licenses renewing but also existing licenses with, uh, you know, who have other changes they want to make or, or, or new licenses in the queue. What benefit is the renewal changes going to have for them? Great question, TJ. Uh, so, uh, you know, over the last few months, we've been working on streamlining our marijuana license renewal process. Um, what this really in, um, includes is reducing what we've identified as roadblocks, which uh, slow down or hold up. Uh, the uh, effectively approving a license renewal. Um, and, and that's because in the past, we've allowed a lot of general changes to occur, whether it's business structure changes, um, you know, um, operation changes, changes that, you know, we do ask for notification, whether pre-approval or not, but we ask for these things that we've said, hey, submit those at renewal. And that was a practice that we've had for some time. Um, but what we've learned is that you know, these all everything that's submitted to us requires staff to to vet, to fully look through, and to ensure that everything is okay and and things that aren't really truly necessarily um, important to have at renewal. So what we're doing is a couple of things. We are um, we're we're reducing uh, the complexity of the application itself, the renewal application. Uh, previously, each license type had its own renewal application that must be submitted. They ranged from two to four pages long. Um, now we've we've reduced that down to one page and we have the same application, renewal application um, for all license types. So if you happen to have multiple types of licenses, then you'll you'll appreciate this because you won't have to fill out a different renewal application for each type you might have. 
Um, so that's going to be great. We're also making and, and currently in testing phase, making some changes to our NIC licensing system. You know, in, in fact, in, in, pre in previous cases, you're basically uploading all a brand new application, a repeat application that you might have submitted initially. Um, and then staff would go through and look at everything that they would have looked at uh, at the very beginning of your of your license life. And and we just found that that's really not necessary. What we really want to know is, did you if you made changes, we want to have you do that outside of the renewal process, unless the rule at the time requires it. So this will be quite helpful um, to reduce that time it takes for license renewals. And ultimately, the biggest goal here is that we can uh, we can remove one, maybe two investigators that go through this work currently and allow them to be focused on uh, new applications, the other areas within licensing that we have um, backlogs that we want to address. And that's thank you for all that info. I think that that's a lot of really good information. I think people will appreciate that that progress. But some people may hear, you know, one, two investigators, what difference is that going to make? But how many investigators do we actually have processing new applications? Yeah, not that's that's a key point. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, we have funded we have 13 positions approved for marijuana licensing, 13 investigator positions. And what I when you think about that, you think about all the different things that we can do um, or that licensees can do. So we have new applications to process. We have um, all the different changes that a current licensee can make. Um, and then all the different license types. So, you know, you got your five different license types. And so over time, uh, what we've identified is that, you know, you, you can imagine with all of the many things that one can do, it's probably best if we, ha if we have our investigators focus in on specific tasks, specific types, smaller groups. So we've teamed up our investigators to work on different types of things. So we have a team that works specifically for wholesalers and um, uh, producers. And then a team that works for retailers, processors, and labs. And those teams work on new applications for those license types. And so when you, when you have 13 positions and you start breaking those down to, to try to specialize so that they can become more efficient in the work that they do, we really only end up with 13 with a couple, two to three people per team. Because we've also identified we have to have a renewal team. Again, that's where we get back to if we can streamline and reduce the work needing to be done at renewals, we can uh, move those people to the other teams. And because renewals really, when you think about it, we've got close to 2,400 licenses active. Um, that's 2,400 renewals every year that must be done. That's the biggest bucket of work uh, that must be, uh, must be processed. And so initially we had four investigators assigned to that team. So what I'd like to do is reduce that down by half, ideally, so that two other people could go to that new application team. And, and that would make a dramatic increase because right now we have two people assigned to work through retailers, um, processors, and labs, and two people assigned to work through uh, producers and wholesalers. And then we have two people assigned to manage the changes for those different license types, the kind of changes that come through. So one person adding to any one of those teams is a significant impact to the work that we can get through. That's great, Jason. So I think that the big question really, and I think probably what we hear about the most right now is um, the actual backlog of people who applied prior to like the licensing pause in 2018. <clears throat> so there's people that have been sitting in the licensing queue for like two years now. So 
what steps are you taking to be able to get to those applications? I mean, I know you've already touched on some, but I think there are more things that you're doing in licensing to actually be able to speed up the process. Yes. Thank you, Amanda, for bringing that up. That is definitely uh, the sore spot for us. Um, It is not, we believe it's not, not acceptable. We know the industry believes it's certainly not acceptable to be two years behind with applications. Um, it was never our intent to to get this far behind, to not be um, able to manage through uh, this many requests. We did kind of uh, set ourselves up for failure to a degree when we put a pause in place and noticed that pause um, because we received a significant amount of applications in a short period of time that we, you know, the past practice showed we wouldn't have probably received those at that time, um, you know, at the, at the rate that we received them. And so, you know, what that also meant, what we hypothesized to a degree was that we think there's a lot of people in line that truly aren't ready to be licensed. But when they heard that we we're going to put a pause on things, they went ahead and applied so that they could have a place in line um, so that when they're ready, who knows when that might be, they will at least be able to have that opportunity, not knowing what the future holds. And I get that because this is a, you know, it's an ever-changing industry. It's still a new industry to, a, you know, to a degree and maybe not as much within Oregon, but as a nation, it's a very new industry. So I understand why someone might want to do that. But what that, where, how that hurts us is that when we assign an application to an investigator, there's a significant amount of work and prep work that goes on to each application that an investigator must go through. Um, so, you know, they, they prepare a file, they prepare documentation to be sent, um, and then they, get, they begin communicating with the applicant. Uh, that can take a couple of days to kind of get all of that work uh, together uh, to, so that it, when it's sent to the applicant, it's done in a way that can be understood and really help the applicant know what's necessary to move forward. And so what we found was, you know, what we were doing um, knowing that we're also calling these applicants out of the blue after a year, maybe even two years um, of not having contact because they've been in line, you know, that's kind of a, you know, you get caught off guard as an applicant. So, you know, what we what we realize is we're going to give you two weeks. We're going to send you all this information. We'll prepare your packet. We'll move it forward. And we're going to give you two weeks to let us know if you would like us to um, begin your process. Because a, a recent change earlier this year in rule um, required that a applicant, an applicant application must be able to be completed process ready to be licensed within 60 days. And so knowing that, um, and then if you're not, then you get placed in a extended hold queue. Um, so knowing that, you know, we're catching you out of the blue, uh, we give you this two week notice and, and conversation goes back and forth in that two weeks. Sometimes it's much, sometimes it's a little, sometimes it's nothing. And then on day 13, Day 14, we're told often, you know what, I'm not just going to be ready. Go ahead and go move down the line. So what we've developed was this readiness checklist. And this readiness checklist details the things that we believe that if you have complete the, if you've completed these things, you should um, absolutely be able to be completed within that 60-day time frame uh, noticed in rule. And so we send this readiness checklist out not by a normal investigator. They're not getting an assignment. This is going to those next small group of people in line. And we send this document out. We give them two weeks to notify us if they're ready or not. And they will go through and initial all of the things that we say you, you got to have ready. And, and then uh, you send that back to us. Now, if, if you're going to be ready, great. You sign off saying, yep, I'm ready to go. Um, if you're not going to be ready, but you have a period of time you think you will be ready in, we ask you to let us know what that period of time will be. But in any event, we do ask you to respond within the two-week period of time, and we let you know what that what that time frame is. This is really helpful because what this means is 
we get to not start that work until we know someone's ready because you send that form back if you're ready to go then we'll actually assign you if you're not ready to go we won't assign you so we've started using that form in june for all license types and what we have found is that about 30 percent in the last month that have received that form have told us either not responded uh, um there's a handful of people that just didn't respond with the form but um half of the people who responded 30% overall who got sent the form um, have said that they're not ready now. And they'd like the average time that they will be ready will be four and a half to five months later. Well, this is great because we get to move down that backlog much faster. I, I you know, I'm told often by people in the industry, hey, listen, I, you know, I've got a hundred people in front of me, but I'm ready to go. I bet there's a lot of people in front of me that aren't ready. Well, it's true. There are many people that would rather not be assigned and, and would like to just hold their place in line. So this will allow us to work through that backlog uh, faster, and we're seeing that it's working. Jason, you talked a lot, obviously, just now about renewals and and the the new license backlog, and and a lot of that is sort of internal process improvement, I guess, incremental changes to add up to a big difference. One other thing that I hear about is it's it's sort of the other side of it is is it's uh, rule based stuff, right? Especially around change of business, change of location, change of financial interest, those things that our rules were built all to require pre-approval. And so because of the number of licenses we have, the number of, of you know buyouts and investment that's going on, and just that we're overworked in renewals and new licenses and all that stuff, that has also created this bit of a backlog for those requests and, and people saying, you know, our process can't keep pace with the change of of uh, the market, right? Can't keep pace with those changes that happen inevitably. Uh, what is what what changes are being looked at or being made or or conversations are happening around uh, those types of requests for the existing licenses and the changes that happen? The important part of our business is to be responsive to current licensees and their needs, to be able to adapt as the industry adapts. It's extremely difficult when we're talking about a government agency that doesn't have the freedom to do the things that private industry does. But we were, do, we're doing what we can and, and we'd like to do better at just being able to be more responsive, to grow with the industry as the industry wants to grow, to shift as the industry wants to shift. So we would like to do that along with them and provide that support you know, as seamlessly as possible. So a couple of things that we're working on is, and I will say what we've identified, especially um, something, things that were put in place early on when there was a lot of unknowns about this industry and what what we were going to be facing, uh, what kind of federal oversight we were going to be facing. You know, we built a system that that had a lot of checkpoints that needed to be cleared, a lot of hurdles that needed to be cleared. Um, with, I guess at the time, the idea is probably that this would allow us to just to make sure we're staying on top and we're aware of what's going on and 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 we you know we can make sure that we approve things as they happen instead of letting things just you know move along at their own pace in their own way um so we have several things that require pre-approval or that require uh we we have just put requirements in place that things have to happen independently of other things that from the industry perspective it certainly didn't make sense and we've heard that a lot and in one area we've heard that a lot about um has been the um, you know, processing a change of location at the same time of a change of ownership. So what we often get where you have a current licensee who would, you know, is, wants to get out of the business or move on, do something different. You've got a, another person who would like to take ownership over 
that business. And then at the same time, they would like to take that ownership, but they would like to move that business, um, that license to a new location. And so without getting into the weeds about, you know, why we have in the past had this standard that they must happen independently of each other, we have recently piloted a, a process that allows them to almost happen simultaneously. And what we have found is that it's working, you know, and what the industry has been saying is true and we can make that happen. Um, and I fully believe that we will be able to, um, you know, finalize this process soon and have this be the way we do business moving forward. Additionally, we're also looking at, you know, just in general uh, areas, especially around financial interest and, and business structure changes that our past practice or current practice has required uh, some level of pre-approval before the action can occur. We've heard loud and clear from the industry, and we know that the banking is- issue is is a is a primary concern of the industry. That it's just not easy to get con- conventional funding, and so our current requirements of a hundred thousand dollars or more um, investment or loan or um, you know funding into a licensed business, uh, you know, currently requires pre-approval by us, and and so we recognize that you know that's just not. It's not too feasible and it, it bogs down the process. It certainly gives us more work to do, but then again, it doesn't allow the, the industry to, to um, shift and, and, and be flexible and nimble. So we are, we're actively looking at areas where we can reduce things that are uh, required pre-approval and instead just require um, notifications so that we can update. It's important for us to have an updated license file and then that's important for everybody. Um, and so, you know, what we need to have happen is we need to be notified of things. But I think I believe that there's areas where we can reduce um, what is required to have pre-approval. So, Jason, you said something that really stuck out to me and that when you were talking about the decisions that we made five years ago when we first started this program. So it really sounds like you're really taking a focus now to look at um, the realities of the marijuana industry in 2020 what we know and what we've learned and really be able to change our system so that, um, you know, we can have a successful industry and actually be able to, to make this, you know, really make this work for both the agency and the participants. Yes, that's, that's absolutely correct. You know, I think, I think it's probably not appropriate to say this is a, a new industry for Oregon anyway. It's changing industry. Absolutely. It's an ever evolving industry probably will be for, I don't know, as long as we're all working uh, but I, I I don't think it's appropriate to say it's 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 a it's an it's in its infancy stage. I think I think we're at a point where we can you know what are we we're adolescents now we're you know we're we're, we're preteens maybe um, I don't know come up with whatever uh, analogy you want but I do believe it's time that we um, recognize uh, what success has occurred in the industry and that there has been success. There's been a lot of success. There's been we have happy customers, we have happy industry folks. And as an agency, we're excited about this industry and what it's doing and the growth that it's had. And it's time to, I think, put some, and it's something that I've mentioned previously, and it goes in line with what we're doing about reducing those, you know, for example, that pre-licensing require, uh, inspection requirement. We're putting more onus back into the industry to say, listen, so here's your expectations. You, you gotta show up and if you can do that, we can reduce all of the hurdles you have to go through because you're going to do your part. And so we're going to ask the industry to be very aware and up to date with the rules and be actively engaged with our processes around, you know, our rules when we update and and make new rules and, and be aware of these things and reach out to us when you have questions, but we're also going to hold you accountable when we do stuff. You you know, it's your job to to know it, learn it and, and do it. If you need help, let us know we're here for you, but we don't want to just have all of these with our seemingly just, 
excess, you know, frivolous requirements up front that, um, you know, the industry says we don't need them. And, and I think I think personally, we don't need them. I think there I think we can we can back off a lot and, and, and catch stuff up on the back end and and come in and work with people when we find discrepancies, when we find violations, when we when we find areas of improvement, we can work with everybody as long as we're getting a good uh, response from the industry and a good engagement. And I think we can find success in, in, in making things flow through uh, more seamlessly without you know, less checkpoints. Jason, thanks for joining us. I'm sure we'll have you back as we work through this. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Coming up next, we'll have the question of the podcast, and then we'll take a look at the calendar ahead. You're listening to In the Weeds, the ultimate OLCC cannabis podcast. So it's time for the question of the podcast. And Amanda's here with this episode's question. Amanda. Okay, so this is the big meeting question during COVID times. How are we doing public meetings? And how are we actually getting together? Like, what tools do we have as an agency that we're utilizing? Is it Zoom? Is it Teams? Is it GoTo meetings? What are we doing? Are we gonna make well, them? Are we gonna make them the listeners guess how we're doing this this time? Is that is that part of? Is there a bonus? Some kind of? All right. So TJ, well, I uh, am I am like, recording as are you guys from your home studios. So that's part of the answer. We are uh, actually I think you know aside from from our our liquor warehouse where we distribute all the bottles of liquor out of the state. That's obviously something that has to be done in person huge you know revenue engine of the state right now especially they are doing you know heroes work going in every day but everyone more or less everyone else at the agency i think 85 percent of us are telecommuting from home so that's that's one major thing is we are leveraging you know teleconference technology to be getting the day-to-day work done in terms of the public meetings those are still public uh, we are using GoToMeeting to actually hold our conference meeting, our, our, our commission meetings with a public call-in, kind of a listen-only mode. Um, and so we've been able to, to use that to great effect to make sure that people are still connected, uh, post the audio to our website for people to listen after the fact, just like we did for all our other commission meetings. And then one thing uh, that I'm pretty proud of uh, that, we, that we still managed to do was the metric user group. Uh, usually that's something that's in person. There's 50 or so people from the industry that meet to vote on what they would like to see in metric each quarter. Um, that's a hard thing to do through a conference line. Um, but what we managed to do is instead of doing an in-person meeting, we did it through SurveyMonkey. So we had them, you know, say what they wanted, uh, you know, what their their dream list would be, and then vote as a big group by allocating their days through the survey what they want to have done. And so we just closed that up. Uh, we got some good suggestions that, and we can maintain that momentum of the work for the user group continuing to go on. So we found creative solutions 
to maintaining our connection to licensees and our stakeholders. Did you, I was going to say, did you find that that uh, this encouraged people to be more um, contributor contributory as opposed to if it was a you know a meeting in a room where you know typically some people tend to you know lead the discussion. Yeah, I think you know we got a good a good mix. I mean, like you said, when you have fifty or so people, you know, some people are just going to be more extroverted and more outgoing than others, and other voices are going to be a little bit more quiet. So I think this was a good avenue of, um, you know, in some ways forcing everyone to participate. And I think you get different voices at the table. Um, and and you know what I'd honestly like to see is is. Um, I, I think this is probably universal for everything that we've we've done with COVID is there's some benefits to trying something new and there's some benefits of being forced to be flexible and creative. Yeah. And so I think as much as possible, trying to find a way to, you know, leave behind the things that we didn't like uh, and return to normal in some ways, but also the things that did work, uh, integrate those and, and, and keep those as we move forward. Right. And, you know, one thing about this and just the way we were able to put this recording of this podcast together is that, um, you know, we're doing it outside normal business hours, if you will. Right. There's the, that line has become a lot blurry now. But, you know, before you, the three of us have always been challenged at trying to sync up our schedules because there's always so much going on and even more so now. So now we found a window outside normal business hours to get this done. And, uh, I'm, not, I'm not holding that out necessarily as a promise for uh, increasing our frequency, but a uh, podcast, but there you go. So anyway, um, so uh, Amanda, this is one of our favorite times uh, of year. Uh, I think when we ask you, you know, what, uh, you know, when we pull out the calendar and ask you what you've got your eye on, it's usually something water related. Um, so is that, uh, is that still the case? This, I mean, you know, Really, summer is just finally beginning to peek its its nose out. I mean, it's been cold and rainy for a good portion of uh, of May and June, don't you guys it think? Has but <clears throat> it looks like I mean we're past the Fourth of July. True. So it it looks like we're starting to get into summer. And yes, I am looking forward to the river. <laughs> well, Amanda, Amanda said that, you know, she's been saying, look forward to July 4th. The weather's going to get warm. And then what was it? July 5th. It was like raining. Gray <laughs> and cold. And I, everybody was like, somebody told me it was going to be nice. <laughs> so <clears throat> I am looking forward to that. Any, anything so, else on your, on your calendar at all? Yeah, there's, there's actually a lot of other things. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it's cutting into my. I, heard that. I was just giving you a setup. I know there's. Do you want to start <laughs> ticking some, listing some of them off? Yeah, I would. But I think um, one of the things I really wanted to hit on was what Jason had said earlier about the five years of legalization and how we're starting to like relook at our policies and procedures and what we're doing. And um, what we've done is we've pulled together like an advisory committee. And it's interesting because we got the idea from liquor because they have like an overarching advisory committee that meets quarterly, you know, or maybe twice a year, once a year, however it's needed. Um, and we were like, oh, that's a really great idea. We should have the same thing for marijuana. And so we put one together and I'm really interested in the work that comes out of this committee. It has, um, it's not directly related to rules. So it's not a rules advisory committee. 
but they're giving us feedback on our policies and our protocols. And so like when on procedures, you know, so like they're going to be looking at business structure changes. And maybe if we do need to go into rulemaking, we'll have a separate advisory committee for that if we want to do something. This is really a group to kind of think about changes that need to be made now that we're all in it five years. And, um, you know, things are different. When we started this five years ago, it was Colorado and Washington. And us in Alaska came in the same day. So it was a lot different landscape than it is now. So I think that um, that thinking and that forward progress is going to be a real benefit to the industry and to the agency and to the the state. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard to believe that it's five, that it's five years, right? But it's but now I guess there is the opportunity that, you know to sort of stand back and assess uh, a little bit more as opposed to. I mean, there was a lot of tinkering that had to go on, you know, to, I mean, because, we, you know, for instance, I remember you know, we were talking about delivery. Uh, I remember when the rules, you know, the, 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 the rack that was was guiding on the rules for delivery. I mean, they passed it. It, it was really the, the industry didn't really want to tackle it from the onset. So they passed. What was it? It was a real nominal amount of. Uh, it was like a hundred dollars or something. Yeah, a hundred dollars. Yeah, it was just that that's all you could do. You know, that's all you could have to deliver because it was really they had to put something they had to put a marker in, but they really didn't want to tackle it. Right. And and look at look at where we are now. Um, so yeah, and thank goodness we had that. I mean, obviously, right. it wasn't a hundred dollars that yeah. ended up being on the books. But, you know, thank goodness we had those conversations early on. So we were able to have something in writing and able to do what we're doing now. Right. I do think, though, you know, on that point, um, you know, we say a lot now, especially relooking at our rules and our regs, but with home delivery and some other things, you know, not to toot our own horn, but we have been at the forefront of a lot of this. I mean, there are states that, uh, you know, for home delivery, the driver has to have a body cam, you know, so uh, there are certain things that we've maintained some flexibility on, even though we made this up as we went along and we're one of the first ones. It's not all sort of, uh, you know, doom and gloom that we have to revisit. You know, TJ, that sounds like, you know, it sounds like an opportunity for somebody to make up a reality TV show, right? You know, <laughs> with that body cam video, you know, <laughs> all right. Uh, so what's what do you TJ? What do you got? Uh, what are you looking at in your calendar coming ahead this summer? Uh, well, it seems like it's an annual thing. We've got a busy year of rulemaking ahead of us. In particular, uh, we have a busy summer of uh, rules that will will really finally tackle additives in vaping products. Obviously. I think everyone who's listening to this podcast remembers Evali and the lung injuries that happened over the fall, the temporary flavor ban that we instituted. Uh, this is permanent rulemaking, um, which will be, uh, you know, a, a longer time uh, to to sort of gather the facts and implement. That's starting now. It'll probably go into effect. I would say, you know, being passed by our commission in the fall, maybe in October, September, something like that. But really evaluating the ingredients that are in these vaping products, the the you know things that are intended for 
uh, ingestion, but not inhalation. No one really knows what happens when you expose them to heat, the, the substance that it can sort of off gas and put into your body. And so that's really what we're going to be looking at is um, the safety of those products to ensure that, you know, our number one customer, the, the people who come to our store, the consumers of these products um, have a, a well-regulated system to, to shop at and are being kept safe uh, and, and have are really able to make informed choice about what they're purchasing and consuming. So consumer safety and consumer confidence in the, in the regulated market. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, I would say any, anytime we talk about rulemaking, the number one thing for uh, really anyone affected by this, whether you're a consumer, a licensee, whatever, uh, participate early and often. And so keep an eye on, on what's being proposed participate in the in the public comment period come to the public hearing we're going to have rules advisory committees uh that's sort of invitation only but you can listen in on it you can listen to the audio you can read the documents that we put out really apprise yourself beforehand as the rules are being developed so that you number one have a say you tell us you know pro or con uh, you're in favor of it, you're not in favor of it, why? Uh, so that we really get a better rule because what we don't want is the day it passes, people to start telling us after it's already been passed why it won't work, why it's a bad idea. Tell us that while you still have a time to influence the rulemaking before it gets passed. All good points. Um, and uh, it's it's going to be I don't want to say it's going to be compressed, but it's a lot of work to do in a in a short time, and you know we're just not quite sure where where you know cannabis is going to be in the time of COVID three months from now, right? So we've we've got a lot. So any any as we you know as I mentioned at the at the onset or the very beginning, this is only our second podcast of the year, I think. So uh, any other you know parting thoughts before we we sign off for today? I think I just hope that everybody is doing well and trying to make the best out of this situation. Yeah, absolutely. I'd second that. All right. Well, I'll third it then. Just a reminder again, this podcast is being recorded in July of 2020. Make sure to keep an eye out for subsequent podcasts and other communications from the OLCC to stay current with the rules and to remain compliant. The In the Weeds podcast is a public information service produced by the Oregon Liquor Control Commission to communicate with current and prospective members of Oregon's regulated marijuana industry. Our theme music is a portion of the song The Afterlife by Yacht, licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license from Creative Commons. For more information about Oregon's recreational marijuana program and this podcast, visit marijuana.oregon.gov. You can listen to In the Weeds through SoundCloud or subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or TuneIn. Our thanks to Josh Fisher for engineering today's podcast. I'm Mark Pettinger for Amanda Borup and TJ Sheehy. Until next time, keep listening. And until then, keep reading the rules.